in chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Once again, Father, we come before you as your children, asking that your Holy Spirit will accompany us this evening. We pray that in light of what all of the what will be said this evening and the language that is going to be used, I pray that you will stretch our minds you will stretch all of our ideas and remove all of the, the, the baggage that we have concerning your Christ. We pray that we come this evening desiring to know who Jesus Christ is. We pray that this evening we will walk away with a better understanding of who Christ is in his person. We confess he is one person with two natures. We pray that this evening we will see the glory of Christ in his person, the one who has come down from such a high place and stoop down to such a low place for our salvation. So we pray that your Holy Spirit will accompany the preacher, will accompany the hearer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this evening we want to uh, continue our series in Christology. And if you remember Christology, when we say Christology, we are speaking of the doctrine of the person and work of Jesus Christ who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done. And if you remember the past couple of months, uh, we have been laboring and, and to a certain extent belaboring uh, the person of Christ, that he is one person with two natures, that Jesus Christ has possesses two natures, and these two natures are fully God or truly God and fully and truly man. If you remember, that is what we were been speaking about. We looked at uh, Isaiah 6 a while ago on a Sunday morning. When we seen the this messianic uh, prophecy and this messianic vision of of Isaiah, where he sees the risen and ascended Lord uh, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And there we saw that Christ is fully and truly divine. And then we looked at Philippians chapter two, where we have that wonderful passage of Christ where we see this one who's sitting on high stoops down to the human to human likeness and what does he do he lives dies and he rises for his people so we looked at that then we looked at and considered the incarnation of Christ and if you remember the incarnation simply means to become flesh that is another confession that, that we must all hold on to that uh, the eternal son became like his own he became flesh. And if you remember, saints, when we speak of the incarnation, it isn't the Trinity that becomes flesh. It isn't the Trinity that becomes incarnate. It isn't the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that becomes flesh. But it is the second person of the triune Godhead who becomes flesh. In fact, it's fitting that the one who is eternally begotten from the Father is the one who is begotten in time by the Virgin Mary. So Jesus, the the eternal son, is the one who becomes flesh. It's also most important that when we speak of this one who becomes flesh, again, that we, uh, we confess that this one is truly and fully God. In fact, saints, it's of utmost importance. If you get, uh, if you get one thing wrong, you can't get this thing wrong. And that is Jesus Christ is truly God and truly 
man. And throughout church history, all the Orthodox have confessed this one confession. But saints, when we say Christ is God, if you remember, we have to consider what do we not mean when we say that Christ is God? So when we say Christ is God, when we say he is truly God, we don't mean that he is one God amongst many gods. We don't mean that Christ is a God. But if you remember, when we speak of Christ being truly God, that he is the God, that he is co- that he is uh, of the same substance with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Christ is not of similar substance with the Father, if you remember. When we speak of the deity of Christ, we're not saying that Christ or the Son is of similar substance with the Father. He is not like the Father, but he is of the same substance of the Father. Again, when we say that Christ is uh, fully God, truly God, we don't mean that Christ was once a man, and based upon his obedience to God, he became God. We must remove that uh, false and heretical view that the Mormon church uh, tends, or the Mormon church believes. When we say that Christ is truly God, we don't mean that Christ is a created man, a created being, thereby him being created by the Father, he receives his deity. When we speak of Christ as truly God, we mean that he is truly and fully God. It means that all of what it means to be God must be predicated to Jesus Christ. It means that Jesus Christ, with respect to his divinity, that he is simple without parts. It means that he is immutable without change. It means that he is impassable, unable to undergo change in his perfections. It means that he is all say, that he is of himself. That's what we mean when we speak of Christ being truly and fully God. And then we looked at the other nature that the one person Christ possesses, and that is his human nature. It's not enough for us to confess that Jesus Christ is God, which we are to confess but also we must confess in the same breath that he is truly and fully man. And saints, if you remember when we speak of Christ being fully or truly man, what we don't mean, we don't mean that Christ is partially man, that he has a little bit of humanity in him. We don't mean that Christ came in the semblance of man, meaning that Christ appeared to be man, but he really wasn't man, which is a heresy in the early church known as docetism. We don't mean that Christ came in the body of the man, but he had a divine mind. When we say that Jesus Christ is truly man, fully man, we don't mean that Christ, the Son of God, came and he just wore a flesh suit. But rather, the eternal Son took to himself a true human nature. What our confession of faith says in chapter 8 is something that we must take hold of and remember when we speak of the humanity of Christ. In chapter 8, our confession of faith says, when the fullness of time come, or was come, uh, take upon him man's nature. Christ took upon himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. That's a proper and orthodox definition of Jesus Christ and his true humanity. That all of what it means to be human all of the common infirmities that constitute our humanity, Christ, in his human nature, possesses yet without sin. If you remember, saints, when we speak of Christ's human nature, we must always uh, clarify and qualify that Jesus Christ took our human nature yet without sin. He got hungry. 
He got tired. He was tempted. The son became a true human without sin. But saints, we also have to remember that when the eternal son took to himself human flesh, when he added to himself, remember the incarnation is not the eternal son uh, uh, setting aside his divine attributes or his deity, but it's more so the eternal son adding to himself a human nature. The incarnation is an addition, not subtraction. So when we think of Christ and his incarnation, when we speak of his humanity, we must remember that when the eternal son of God became flesh, when he uh, took on a human nature, that he did not set aside what he was, but remained always true to who he always has been, truly God. The one who upholds the world is the same one who was brought down in, in a manger in swaddling clothes, wrapped in swaddling clothes and was born of the virgin Mary. So saints, where do we go from here? Now that we have considered Christ and his two natures, now that we've removed all the impurities of what we think when we think of Christ and his human nature and his divine nature, what do we do now? Well, now we must consider when the two natures were united to Christ's person, was there some type of alteration or change in any of the two natures? We said that one more time. When the eternal Son of God added to himself a true human nature, was there any alteration and change? Was there any change in the divine nature? Or was there any change or alteration in the human nature? How does this one person live a life with two natures? In fact, how does this one person who has two natures not be two persons? And since there is one Christ, since Christ is one person with two natures, how does this one Christ operate with two natures? Are these two natures in Christ, are they fighting amongst each other throughout his life? Does the divine nature take over the human nature at times? Does the human nature take over the divine nature at times? Is Christ schizophrenic in his being? Those are questions that we have to ask And those are questions that have been asked throughout the centuries of the church. In fact, saints, you can say that the first eight centuries of the church, give or take, was a fight over the person of Christ. Was he truly God? Is he truly man? If he has, if he's one person, then how is he one person with two natures? How is he not uh, one, uh, how is he not uh, with two natures, two persons? Those are things that we must think of. And these are questions that we must ask. So this evening, what I want to do is I want to look at uh, two doctrines that are vital to understanding uh, the person of Christ. The first is the hypostatic union. So that's the first point, the hypostatic union. And the second point is the communication of properties and operations. Okay, so number one, the hypostatic union. And number two, the communication of properties and attributes. And then the third point would be, why does this all matter? Why does this all matter? And saints, I'm going to say from the outset that much of the language I'm going to be using this evening is going to be somewhat new, somewhat difficult. But I pray that you will get used to uh, the, 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 the technical language that is going to be used. Uh, so if you're not taking notes, 
I suggest that you take notes to keep your mind occupied, that you uh, don't fall asleep, and that you uh, uh, don't get uh, lost in some sort of trance when we think about all of this nuanced language and Christ being one person with two natures and all that. And also, too, I want to add, uh, I challenge you this evening to stretch your minds, to uh, stretch all the things that you know about Christ and who he is in his person. Uh, there is a deeper level that we must go to when we speak of Christ and his person. And this evening, this so happens, uh, we have to go into the deep end. So uh, let's think about Christ and his person. And, and when, we, uh, when we leave the deep end, when we get more to the shallow end, we will see Christ in all of his beauty and glory, I hope. So let's think about Christ and his person. And before we do that, before we consider the hypostatic union, I want to uh, lay out a definition, two definitions that are going to be helpful for us when we consider Christ, who is one person with two natures. So let's define what it means to be a person and what it means to be to have or possess a nature. Okay, so if you're taking notes, you can write person dash and I'll give you a definition. Then the next one, nature dash, and I'll give you a definition. So, saints, when we consider person, We've all heard this before, right? So what is a person? That is a, that is a rich uh, and deep philosophical question. What is a person? A person refers to the who or what a thing is. A who or what a thing is. One theologian defines person as, and this is important, an active subject who does things and to whom things happen. One more time. A person is an active subject who does things and to whom things happen. So you all I'm looking at are persons. You're looking at me. I'm a person. Me being a person, you being a person, you are an active subject. Okay? That is what a person is. Uh, He's active in what he does. Now let's consider nature. What is a nature? A nature is that which makes up what we are. Or that which we are composed of. In other words, a nature is what makes you human. What makes a kangaroo a kangaroo? Then we would describe a kangaroo's nature. Or what makes, uh, what is the nature of a chair or a dog, right? So when we ask, what is the nature of a human? We would say humanity. And then we would talk about all the things that constitute us being human, right? So when we think of nature, it's that which makes up what we are, okay? That which um, that we are composed of. Now, let's think about the relationship between person and nature. What's the relationship between person and nature? We know that a person refers to the who, and the nature refers to that which makes up the who, okay? Now, what's the relationship? Herman Boving says this. A person is what exists in and for itself. Hear this. A person is the owner, possessor, and master of a nature. A person is the owner, possessor, and master of a nature. Sustaining and determining the existence of a nature. And hear this. The subject, which is the person, right? A person, the subject that lives, thinks, wills and acts through nature. So let's break this down. What Herman Boffing is saying is a person is the active subject and the one or, or what, what, um, what flows through the person is our nature. 
Simple as that. That's our person acts through our nature. In other words, our person acts through our nature for natures are not active agents. Persons are. Let me give you an example. When we say that um, Pastor Antonio is great, right? He has a great personality. We don't say that Pastor Antonio, man, he's a great nature, right? We say, man, Antonio, he's a great person, right? Or we say that Brother Anthony, he's a great person, but we don't say he's a great nature because natures are not active subjects. A person is. And then when we speak of Pastor Antonio, when we speak of how great he is and, and Anthony, how great he is, right? We speak of his person and then we speak of all the things that constitute his person. We begin to speak of his nature, his characteristics, his attributes, right? So in the case of Christ, how does this make sense with Christ? It is the son who assumes a human nature and now subsists in two natures. And the one person, Christ, acts through both natures. So Christ is one person who acts through two natures. We are one person and we act through one nature. Does that make sense? Christ is one person. He acts through two natures. Okay. Here's a very helpful explanation of Frank Sheed. I don't recommend you to uh, uh, look him up, but um, he's a Roman Catholic. So you got to, uh, you know, chew the meat and spit out the bones when you read Roman Catholics. But he has a wonderful, easy uh, definition of, of, of person and nature and the distinction between person and nature. So listen very closely. It's very, it's kind of long, but listen closely. The distinction between what and who is the distinction between nature and person. Of every man, two questions arise. What is he and who is he? Okay. Can be answered. Every man, in other words, is both a nature and a person. Into every action, nature and person enter. For instance, for instance, I speak. I speak. I, the person, speaks. Okay? But I am able to speak only because I am a man. Because it is of my nature to speak. Right? It is not of the nature for a dog to speak. Right? Or of a, of a cat to, to speak. Right? Um, although they speak in their own ways. But um, when we when we consider I, the person speaks, um, I am only able to speak because it is my nature to speak. I discover that there are all sorts of things I can do and all sorts of things I cannot do. Hear this. My nature decides. My nature decides I can think, speak, walk. These actions go with the nature of man. Right. Which I have, but I cannot fly. Saints, why can't you fly? Because it is not of your nature to fly. It is of the nature of birds, right? To fly. Okay? So natures determine your person and what you can do. Again, I read, my nature then decides what I can do. It may be thought of as uh, settling the sphere of action possible to me. According to my nature, I can act. Apart from it, I cannot. Meaning, persons cannot act in and of themselves apart from a nature. Okay? But my, but my nature does not do these things. I, the person, do them. What he's saying is, it's not my nature that acts, but it's the person that acts through the nature. 
That's very helpful to, to, if you're taking notes, write that down when we speak of Christ, because it's going to start making sense. Um, uh, it is not my nature that speaks, walks, thinks. It is I the person. A man may, a man may then be thought of as a person who acts and a nature which decides the field in which he acts. In, uh, in man, there is one, there is simply one nature to one person. In Christ, there is two natures to one person. That's a mystery. That is a profound mystery. How can one person possess two natures? For a nature, if one has a nature, then one must have a person. Doesn't that's but that's a profound mystery. That's that's uh, that I don't know if we'll ever consider. But I think we can we can do the deed and 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 uh, and from the help of the early church fathers and and theologians, we can uh, attempt to answer it. So now that we have laid the groundwork for defining what a person and what a nature is, and we must now consider who Jesus Christ is in his person. Now, the question that arises in light of what we just talked about, how do we make sense of the union of two natures in the one person, Christ? In other words, when the person of the Son united to himself a human nature, was there any change or alteration in his divine nature? How do we think of the two natures in the one person, Christ? Which leads us, saints, to the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Now, you might ask, what is the hypostatic union? You might have heard it before, but never got a clear definition of it. You might have heard it when you're, when you're listening to your favorite preacher uh, preach. They speak of the hypostatic union. What do we mean when we say the doctrine of the hypostatic union? Well, like all doctrines, before we define uh, the, the classical orthodox view uh, definition of the hypostatic union, we must consider what we do not mean when we say the hypostatic union. So when we say the hypostatic union, what do we not mean? What do we not speak of when we speak of the hypostatic union? Well, first, when we say Christ is one person with two natures, we aren't to liken him to a superhero. Okay? When we say Christ is one person with two natures, we aren't to liken him to a superhero. Christ is not Superman. And, and, and many of us might have the tendency to think that Christ is Superman. We see Superman and we think that Superman has two natures. He is, uh, he has a, he has a human nature and then he has some other nature that's, uh, I, yeah, I, brother, I, Pastor Antonio helped me with this because if you don't know, Pastor Antonio has a PhD in, uh, Supermanology. So, uh, Pastor Antonio helped me a lot with this, but I still don't understand. So Superman is not just, he's not a human. And then, I mean, he's from Krypton, right? So he's a Kryptonian. So what it means to be a Kryptonian is you have these, these you have these uh, distinctives, you have these characteristics, you have these attributes, right? Everyone from Krypton has the attribute of flying, right? They have the attribute of of uh, uh, going faster than a speeding bullet and and blowing air. I don't, I'm, I'm not going to go, but maybe they do, maybe they don't. But they have these unique attributes, right? That's what it means for to be a, a Kryptonian. But Saint Superman is not fully human, and then. Or he's not one person with two natures. He's not, he's not Superman who has, who is fully human and then he was fully superhero. You get what I mean? He, Superman has one nature. He's one person, right? And that nature is a super nature, whatever you want to call it. He's a person with superpowers. He has, uh, he is a super, he has one super nature, but he lives in a world, uh, with humans, we can say. So just because Superman lives in on earth doesn't mean that he's necessarily human. Does it make sense? So we aren't to alike in Christ, Jesus Christ, who is one person with two natures, to Superman, who is one person with one nature. And hopefully that helped you when you think about Superman um, for the rest of your life. Um, so Superman, we aren't to think of him as Superman. 
how does this analogy relate to Christ? What do we mean? What we mean is Christ is not a human person with divine attributes. Okay? Christ is not a human person with divine attributes. That's heretical. We don't think that. Okay? Uh, he doesn't simply have a human body with divine perfections. Okay, he's not a, he's not, he doesn't, he's not, he's not the eternal, he's not the eternal God or the second person of the Trinity with a flesh suit. Okay, he's one person with two natures. Nor did Christ seem to be human, but was really divine, as I noted earlier, that's the, that's the era of docetism. Okay, so when we think of Christ and his two natures, he's not alike to Superman. And mind you also, when we think of Superman, uh, what does Superman do? He, he looks at the news, he sees a kid falling down from Niagara Falls, or whatever. And then what does he do? He goes to the booth or goes wherever. He takes off the, 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 the shirt. You see the S and then he goes, right? That's not the case with Christ. Christ doesn't walk, walk around and he sees something. Okay. According to my divine nature, I'm going to do this. According to my human nature, I'm going to do this. It is one person. And that one person acts through two natures. Okay. Secondly, when we speak of the hypostatic union, we don't mean Christ has one nature, and this is really important because this is a this is a very serious error. We don't mean that Christ is one person that has a mixture of two natures. Okay? He's not one person that has a mixture of human nature and divine nature. That's heresy. We don't think that. That's the heresy of, and we'll get to it, but Eutychianism. Um, when we think of Christ who has one, uh, who is one uh, person that's a mixture of two natures, we are to reject that, for this creates many problems. For one, if Christ has one nature, and that, uh, that is one person, and has one nature, and that one nature is a mixture of humanity and divinity, then how is it Christ, and how is Christ fully God, truly God, and fully man, truly man? Doesn't make any sense. It distorts, right? The true humanity and the true deity of Christ. And you guys all know this. When you mix two things together, what happens to the two things that are mixed together? They lose its substance. You no longer have it. When you mix uh, red and when you mix yellow, do you get what? Orange, right? But in orange, do you still see this? Do you still see the distinctiveness of, of what was what was uh, placed into orange in order for orange to be orange? Red loses red. It loses its redness. Yellow loses its yellowness. So when, when we think about Christ, who is one person, the heir of one person with one nature, and these two natures are mixed together, he's no longer human or divine, but he's a third thing. He's a hybrid of, of something, of, of human and divine nature. Okay? That's error. That's, we, must, we must refuse that. Uh, Christ is not one person with one nature. Rather, he is, he is one person with two natures and these two natures saints this is also important these two natures never mix never ever mix so there's one thing if there's bulletin points you can put uh write down right these two natures in christ never mix um secondly or thirdly which is closely related to what we just spoke of in the hypostatic union we don't mean that the human nature was swallowed up by the divine nature resulting in a hybrid nature that's, that's the error, heresy, not error, that's the heresy of Eutychianism, okay? Which says that the human nature was swallowed up by the divine. And now this one person has not two natures, but one nature. The divine uh, nature of Christ never, ever, ever takes over the human nature. The divine nature remains distinct from the human nature. 
but the human nature and also, uh, 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 but the human nature never creeps into the divine nature. These two natures in Christ remain distinct yet separated. That's important to note as well. Uh, this, as like I said, is known as the error of or heresy of Eutychianism, which denies the two natures of Christ and says, and hear this, and says, whatever happens to one nature washes itself up into the other nature. Let me give you an example. And this is, and this is what Lutherans believe concerning the Lord's Supper. Lutherans believe that Christ is physically present at the table, at the supper, right? We believe that he's spiritually present, that Christ is not physically with us. Why? Because we, we hold to the hypostatic union, right? We hold to a proper hypostatic union that these two natures, right, never mix, that the divine nature never crosses over to the human and the human never crosses over to the divine. The, the problem with Lutherans and the problem with Eutychianism is if Christ, according to his divine nature, is everywhere, then a Christ, according to his human nature, is everywhere. Therefore, he can be present at the Lord's Supper. That's, 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 that's error. That's heresy. We, we, we must reject that. Fourthly, when we say the hypostatic union, uh, we don't mean Christ has a human body and soul, but a divine mind. Okay? Hear that. When we say the hypostatic union, we don't mean Christ has a human body and soul, but a divine mind. That's not what we mean. This is also known as the heresy of Apollinarianism. You might have heard that before, Apollinarianism. And its founder, Apollinarius, taught that Christ has two natures, human and divine, but these two natures could not coexist in one person. Because the human nature is so corrupt, Christ, if he was truly human, then he would be a sinner. And he looked at, he looked at primarily the mind. That our mind is so corrupt, if Christ had a human mind, then he would be a sinner. We must reject that. Apollinarius suggested that although Christ had a human body and human soul, his mind was taken over by the eternal logos. So Christ, according to Apollinarius, was simply a divine being clothed in human flesh. Saints, what's the common denominator with all these heresies and errors? The common denominator is each deny Christ is one person with two natures. All these heresies deny the true humanity of Christ and the true deity of Christ. Each one of these heresies, each one of these heresies um, either separate the human and divine nature of Christ too much, right? Uh, deny one of the two natures of Christ or mix the two natures of Christ, making Christ uh, as one person with one nature and that one nature being a mix of humanity and divinity. We must reject all of those heresies. And mind you, let me add, heresies never die. People still believe those heresies. We must reject and we must know who our Christ is. So when we say the hypostatic union, what do we mean? And I think our confession of faith in chapter 8, paragraph 2, gives us an orthodox definition of the person of Christ that echoes the creedal formulations that came before them. Our confession reads, The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and was so made, and was, 
and so was made of the woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures. And here's our definition of the hypostatic union, okay? So that two whole, perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Each person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. I'm going to do a little exposition of this. Notice, saints, the careful, yet Christological, precise language the writers of our confession use, that at the incarnation, when the person of the Son added to himself a human nature, our confession says the two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. In other words, in the person, in the one person Christ, there are two whole perfect and distinct natures, meaning the humanity of Christ doesn't wash into his divinity or the divinity of Christ doesn't wash into his humanity. But these natures are whole perfect and distinct from one another. They remain distinct from one another. The divine nature does not divinize the human nature, meaning that the divine nature does not give the human nature attributes, divine attributes, nor does, uh, nor does the, uh, the human nature humanize the divine nature, right? The divine nature cannot suffer, right? But Christ, according to his humanity, suffers, Right? Uh, Christ, according to his humanity, suffers. But 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 when we think of when we think of uh, these two natures, we aren't to think of each one of these natures uh, are crossing over each other during the life of Christ. But they are inseparably joined together in one person. Notice what our confession is doing. They're saying that we must distinguish between the two natures of Christ, but we cannot separate the two natures of Christ. That is very important. We don't we distinguish but we don't separate the two natures of Christ. And lastly, saints, notice that when these two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together, hear this, and this is of utmost importance, they united without conversion, composition, or confusion. Conversion, composition, or confusion. And, and here, when we read this statement, our confession of faith, it's important to note that the Baptists were not trying to be novel they're not, they're, they weren't trying to invent a new doctrine concerning the person of Christ. But when we read this a particular statement, it has the echoes of the Chalcedon Creed. It has the echoes of all the Orthodox that came before them. That this statement is really adding more emphasis that these two natures of Christ remained really distinct from one another. Really distinct. They never wash into one another. Right? The human nature doesn't do divine things. The divine nature doesn't do human things. Right. I think John Owen helps us understand this more when he says, and hear this, each nature doth preserve its own natural essential properties entirely unto and in itself without mixture, without composition or confusion, without such a real communication of one unto the other as that one should become the subject of the properties of the other. I just said that. Right, that the human nature doesn't become the divine nature, and the divine nature doesn't become the human nature. The deity in the abstract, hear this, is not made the humanity. Nor, on the contrary, the divine nature is not made temporary, finite, uh, 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 subject to passion or alteration by this union. So, in this union of the two natures, the divine nature never changes. 
Divine nature remains all that what has always been and ever will be. Okay? Nor is the human nature rendered immense, infinite, uh, omniscient. Unless this be granted, there will not be two natures in Christ, a divine and human, nor indeed neither of them, but something or someone else composed of both. And what he's basically getting at is, if we, do, if we say that these two natures mix to one another, mix in with one another, then we lose this, this orthodox statement that all the church is held to, that Christ is one person with two natures. If, if we say that the human nature and the divine nature mix into itself, then he's just one person with one nature. Then we lose the God-man, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> um, now, when we ask saints, well, what's the biblical basis for the hypostatic union? Okay, uh, we must consider that the hypostatic union, a definition of it, uh, the same definition that I gave to you that our confession lays out, is not in the Bible. Okay, you're not gonna you're not gonna read First uh, John uh, twenty verse one. The hypostatic union says this. But what we can do is based on the entirety of Scripture, and what Scripture says about Christ and His two natures, we see that this that the one person Christ, right? His, these two natures never mix with one another. But these two natures are the divine nature never does human things, and the human nature never does divine things. Let's look at a couple of scriptures. Uh, John 1.14. We read this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Cyril of Alexandria, commenting on this verse, says this. The, the word, uniting to himself a body of flesh, animated with a rational soul, substantially was ineffably and incomprehensibly made man and called the son of man. And not that according to the will only or good pleasure, nor again by the assumption of the person alone. Christ, and this is important to note also, when the second person of the Trinity, when the eternal son takes on a human nature, he doesn't take on a human nature that's, that's been existing already from a human person. He doesn't take on a human person. He takes on a human nature. The, the active subject in the incarnation is the second person of the Trinity. Okay? So what I mean by that is there's not one person, and then Christ takes that one person who's already existed, who doesn't have any natures, who's empty of natures, and he infuses his divine nature and his human nature. But the active, the active subject, the one who, oh, the one who does things is the eternal son who takes or adds to himself a human nature. Again, Cyril says, the natures are different indeed, which are brought into true union. But he who's of both Christ the son is one. The difference of the natures, on the other hand, not being destroyed in the consequence of this collision. When these two natures were united, uh, they didn't destroy either of the natures. So what Cyril of, of Alexandria is saying is basically what I've been saying, this entire point, that in this union of two natures, the eternal son does not cast off certain divine perfections. We sometimes think that, that when, uh, when Christ or when the eternal son emptied himself, he set aside omniscience, omnipotence, all these other things. That's not the case. God cannot set aside his divine attributes, his divine perfections. And if God does that, since we have a good theology proper, we know that the divine attributes are of the essence of God, right? That means that God would cease being God. So we don't say that Christ casts off any of his divine perfections in order to unite himself with a true human nature. And many people have trouble with saying, thinking, how can he do this without, without any alteration or change? 
Saints, this is the one who created the world. Simple as that. He can do whatever he pleases. He's God. When the eternal son added to himself a true human nature, neither of these natures are destroyed, but perfectly and inseparably joined together. And if you want more verses, you can write these down. Romans 1, 3, Colossians 2, 9, and 1 Timothy 2, 5. Now let's consider our second point, which is the communication of properties and operations. The communication of properties and operations. Um, and we are, we are going to go a little bit long. It's okay. Uh, but you have the Lord's Supper to look forward to. And then after that, you have Sequoia cake. <clears throat> um, and you can say happy birthday to Pastor Antonio and Betty. Sorry. Uh, now that we have established that Christ is one person with two natures, and these two natures are inseparably joined together, we have to ask, what is the relationship between the two natures of Christ? What's the relationship? How does Christ who is one person, function with two natures. That doesn't make any sense. How do we even make sense of this? This one person uh, doing works, act, acting according to two natures, which leads us to the doctrine of the communication of properties, or you can interchange properties with attributes. So the communication of properties or the communication of attributes, or if you want to be real technical, the communication of idioms. Okay? And what this doctrine means, saints, is this, and bear with me here. It means that the attributes of each of Christ's natures are communicated to the person of Christ. Okay, let me say that one more time. This doctrine is the attributes of Christ's natures are communicated to the person of Christ. Meaning this, this doctrine refers to the way in which we can say things about Christ's person and more specifically, relate to one of his two natures. Here's an example. Whatever we say about Christ's human nature, we can say about his person. And whatever we can say about Christ's divine nature, we can say about his person. Similar with you. When we speak of you, we speak of, your, we speak of you and your human nature, but we are speaking of you and your person. So with Christ, when we speak of his human nature, we're speaking of the one person. When we're speaking of his divine nature, we're speaking of the one person. And what we're really trying to do here, saints, is we're trying to uphold that Christ is one person with two natures, not two persons with two natures. That's what we're trying to uphold, okay? Uh, remember, saints, that uh, natures, and this is going to be helpful, natures are not active agents. Natures don't act in and of themselves, but persons are. So when Christ acts, it's, it's his person who acts according to one or two natures. That's very important. When Christ acts, it's his person who acts through one or two natures and according to the essential properties of the nature by which he is acting. Okay? Here's what our confession of faith says in chapter 8, paragraph 7. Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, by, which, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Really important. Each nature does that which is proper to itself. The divine nature doesn't do human... The human things, human, the divine, uh, human nature doesn't do divine things. Yet by the reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in scripture attributed to the person denominated by the nature. Here the writers of our confession are upholding the unity of the two natures and the one person of Christ. First they say in Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures. And what they were doing here is they were combating the error of Roman of the Roman Catholic Church. You see, the Roman Catholic Church believes that Christ is only mediator according to his human nature. But the Protestants came along and said, no, that's not possible. 
That destroys the hypostatic union. That destroys the communication of properties. Christ is, in the work of mediation, is a mediator um, that acts according to both his divine and human nature. You see, saints, we don't need simply a man to save us. We need the God-man to save us, which we'll get into in our third point. Um, Secondly, they say, each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Important here. Each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Again, this is an affirmation of the distinction of the two natures of Christ. Christ's human nature didn't become endowed with divine attributes. Christ, according to his humanity, didn't become omniscient and almighty, nor did the divine nature become endowed with human characteristics. The divine nature remained perfectly divine and never in any way became human. And the same can be said about the human nature. And here's the statement that we really want to focus in on. Our confession says, Yet by the reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by other nature, by the other nature. This is where we get the communication of attributes. Um, what our confession is saying is this, saints. Both the properties of God, the Son, and the properties of the uh, human nature can be ascribed to the person of Christ. And this is a foundational doctrine for many throughout church history have wrestled with how do we make sense of verses in the Bible that seem to contradict what we know about the person of Christ and his two natures. Let me give you an example. Let's just, let's just do this so we, can, so, we can, uh, so we can all do this together. For, turn to John 3.13 if you can. John 3.13. John 3.13. Maybe when you have read this before, you have noticed, how do we make sense of this? Um, knowing what we know about Jesus Christ. John 3.13 says this, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. One more time. And no man, no man, not any man, hath ascended up to heaven, but that he came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So maybe you didn't catch it. Notice John says the Son of Man came down from heaven. The Son of Man came down from heaven. And that phrase, Son of Man, refers to the Lord's incarnate state. It refers to Christ in his incarnate state. In other words, the title Son of Man is not a title that was proper to the eternal Son in eternity past. In eternity past, the eternal Son was not the Son of Man. He was the Son of God. But John says the Son of Man came down from heaven. How is that possible? Right? doesn't make any sense. So how is it that he can claim that the Son of Man came down from heaven? Here's another example. Um, and I'll just read it to you. Acts 20, 28. You might have heard this before. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And hear this. To the shepherd or to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Did you catch that? That's, it says, God purchased the church with his blood. Is that wrong? How can God bleed? How can he purchase the church with his blood? Scripture is clear that God, as God, does not have blood. God is invisible. Why does God not have blood? Because blood is creaturely. Blood is that which creatures possess. So how can... Um, Acts 20, 28, tell us that God purchased the church by his blood. Well, how do we reconcile these two verses? Saints, the answer lies in this doctrine of the communication of attributes. This is where we find the answer. Sometimes the Bible attributes that which is proper to one nature to the person of the Son. 
So in the case of John 3.13, the Son of Man preexisted in heaven, but according to his divine nature alone. It's not as if John didn't know that the Son of Man wasn't the, pre- wasn't, uh, wasn't, uh, the eternal Son of God. Right? He wasn't contradicting what we know about Christ and his person. The phrase at the end, John 3.13, even the Son of Man which is in heaven should not be read as Jesus Christ, before his incarnation, already possessed a human nature and was in heaven, but rather this refers to his divine nature, though predicated the Son of Man. What I mean by that is, this one is speaking of Christ, who is the Son of Man, right? But when we speak of Christ, who is the Son of Man, which refers more to his, his, his humiliation and his humanity, since it's not the since it's not since it wasn't Christ and His humanity that was up in heaven, it was the person who was up in heaven. The same can be said with Acts twenty twenty eight. God does not have blood. However, the one who died on the cross was the God man. The one who was up in heaven was the God man. But John three John three thirteen doesn't say that that uh, that that one who was in heaven was the God man. He said he was the Son of God. So same as the one who died on the cross, the one who shed blood was the God-man. It was the person of Christ that died, saints. When we think of Christ and his death, we don't say uh, Christ's human nature died. We say Christ, the person, died. Christ's person died. It was the person of the Son according to his human nature that died. However, we don't say Christ's human nature died, but Christ died. That's important to note, saints, that Christ, the one person, acts through two natures. Okay? That is why we can say Mary is the mother of God. Mary did not give birth to the human nature of Christ. She gave birth to the person of Christ, right? So when we speak of, or when when we say Christ was tempted or Christ suffered, we can say these things because it is the person of Christ that suffers. It is the person of Christ that is tempted. But how is he tempted? How is he suffered? according to his human nature, right? How is he omniscient? According to his divine nature. The attribute of each nature, hear this, this is all going to make sense now. The attribute of each nature, because they are united to the person of the Son, are predicated to him as the Son. So even though in John 3.13 we say that the Son of Man came down from heaven, doesn't mean that, uh, doesn't mean that the Son of Man uh, was, not the, was not the Son of God. And just because in Acts 20, 28, it says that God shed blood doesn't mean that God actually died and shed blood. It means that the person of Christ, who was the God man, shed blood. The person of Christ, who was the God man, came down from heaven. And sometimes scripture attributes that which is proper to one nature to the person of Christ. Okay. Um, In other words, what is true of each nature is true of him. What is true of each nature is true of him, the person as the son is the active subject of both natures. Richard Barcells is helpful here. He says that though the human nature of our Lord is not omniscient, it is yet true that his finite human nature is united to the divine nature in the person. And it is according to the divine nature, which is essentially omniscient, that Christ, the person, may be said to be omniscient. He's the God-man. The human nature was united to the omniscient divine nature in the person of the Son. And since the person of the Son acts through both natures, all the acts of Christ, although, the acts, although he acts through both natures, is one act. So what you have is you have one act that is seen through two natures, divine and human. John Owen, 
state this clearly. He says, each nature operates in him according to its own essential properties. The divine nature knows all things, upholds all things, rules all things, acts by its presence everywhere. The human nature was born, yielded obedience, died and rose again. But it is the same person, the same Christ that acts in all these things. When we think of Christ, we don't say the human nature of Christ acted. The human nature, the divine nature of Christ acted. It, we think Christ acted. The person of Christ acted. Because why natures don't act in and of itself. The person acts. The, per, the perfect, complete work of Christ in every act of his mediatorial office and all that he did as king, priest, and prophet of the church and all, that he de- and all that he did and suffered and all that he continues to do for us in or by virtue of whether, of, uh, whether nature whatsoever, uh, be done or wrought is to be considered as the act of, is not to be considered as the act of this nature or that nature of him alone, but it is the act and work of the whole person of him that is both God and man in one person. What Owen is saying is when we think of the work of Christ, we aren't to say that Christ's human nature does this and Christ's divine nature did that, but it is the person of Christ according to both natures did this or did that. So I'm making a distinction between person and nature. Think about this, saints. When Christ performs miracles, he doesn't say, according to my divine nature, I cast out demons. He never says that in Scripture. Or I heal the sick. Or when Christ is hungry, he doesn't say, according to my human nature, I'm hungry, I'm tired. Christ the person says, I'm hungry and tired. Christ the person casts out demons. It is the person of Christ who acts through both natures. Um, now, saints, let's consider our final point, and that is, why, why does all this matter? <clears throat> why does all this matter? Um, when we consider the person of Christ and all of what we have said, this matters because we must be proper in how we speak of who Jesus Christ is. So all of this language of person and nature and all of what we have said don't think that it's just theological uh, language that we add to our Rolodex and we keep it there and we only use it when we get into debates or when we want to study more about the person of Christ. But uh, this helps us understand who he is, but what he has done for us in order that we may worship him more clearly and better. When we, when we think about Christ and what he has done, saints, um, we, have to think about, we have to think about all the heresies that come before And we have to, in our best attempt, know what they are in order that we may not fall into those traps and errors so we can worship Christ for who he is, for how God has revealed him in Scripture. That is why all of this language, that is why the church for the first centuries, first few centuries, fought so tooth and nail over, over, it would seem, little things like Arius saying, there once was a time when the sun was not. It seems so small, but it's of important value. Or, or Apollinarius, or Eutychianism. These people who deny the true nature of Christ and the true humanity of Christ. The, these people who deny the true, uh, the two natures and the one person, or say that he is two natures and two persons. It's important. It's proper for us to have an orthodox Christology, because like I said, heresy, although it may be condemned, never dies. And we too can be, uh, we too can fall into heresy. We too, saints, if we are not studied, can fall into error. So we as Christians are to be precise in our doctrine. We are to be precise in our theology, especially when it comes to the person and work of Christ. As Spurgeon has said, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, Christology is the highest science. 
we all should should labor to know who our Christ is. And what the doctrine of the hypostatic union does for us is it guards us from heresy and it keeps us within bounds within orthodoxy. When we confess the hypostatic union, we are confessing that Christ is truly God and he's truly man. Simple as that. That's what we confess. When we confess that Christ is one person, or we confess that Christ is one person with two distinct natures, and these two distinct natures are inseparably united to the one person, Jesus Christ. The hypostatic union protects us from the heretical beliefs that the human nature of Christ and the divine nature of Christ are mixed together, or the divine nature swallows up the human nature, or the divine attributes of Christ can be attributed to the human nature of Christ and vice versa. Our human nature can be attributed to uh, the divine nature. Saints, as we've already said, the human nature of Christ remains human in and of itself. It never receives divine attributes. And the same can be said about the divine nature of Christ. This could be best summed up in the Chalcedonian Creed, which says, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each union being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance, not parted, or divided into two nature or two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Saints, it's of utmost importance that we know, study, and confess the truth of the doctrine of the hypostatic union in light of how mysterious it is. We must not say, well, it's mysterious. I throw all my hands. I'm never going to look at it again. But in light of mystery, we dive deeper into what the hypostatic union is, what the person, who the person of Christ is. And the same can be said about the communication of properties and attributes. It is not the man, Christ Jesus, uh, that saves us, nor is it the divine nature of Christ that saves us. But our salvation is won by the God-man, the person, Jesus Christ. That's who saved us. The communication of properties and attributes or, um, or operations helps us, makes better sense of how the two perfect, complete, and inseparable natures of Christ operate in one person. And lastly, saints, all that we have said this evening matters for our salvation. Does it not? It matters for our salvation. The hypostatic union and the communication of properties and attributes highlight the mystery and the glory of the incarnation. The greatest event in all of earth. God became man for our sake. The Puritan uh, Stephen Charnock put it so beautifully when he said, What a wonder that two natures infinitely distant should be more intimately united than anything in the world. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy and deity, and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. The incarnation astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. What a wonder of the incarnation. What a wonder of the God-man. The two doctrines that we spoke of tonight highlight, uh, highlight the person of Christ and help us adore the greatness of Christ and what he has done for us. He became like his own without ever ceasing to be what he truly was. Christ was truly human and he was truly God. And saints, that is exactly who we needed in order for us to have our sins atoned for and to have peace with God. In Anselm's great little book titled, Why the God-Man? He has, it's a book where Anselm is having a conversation with a man. And throughout the book, Anselm gives reason after reason of 
why God took on flesh, why it was necessary for God to take on flesh. And the one whom he's referring or or, uh, talking to keeps asking, but isn't there another way? Isn't there another way? Can't there be another way? And Anselm finally says, my dear, have you not yet considered the crucial matter, the weight of your sin? Before you ask, is there another way? Consider the weight of your sin. That one sin is cosmic treason against the holy God. One sin is a cosmic treason against the holy God. That sin is an affront to the righteous holiness of our God. We needed Christ, the God-man. We needed Christ, the God-man. We needed one who was man to represent us. And we needed one who was God to add infinite value and worth to our salvation. You might ask, and I posed this to Bobby and, Antonio, and Pastor Antonio before, or a couple weeks ago, is how can Christ, who is human and God, in his human nature, die? And how can that death be of infinite value? If he died according to his human nature, how can his, how can his death be of infinite value? Because he's the God-man. He's the God-man. And because he's the God-man, his death is of infinite value. His blood, one drop of his blood, is of infinite value. It was the work of the God-man that saves us. If Christ set aside his divine attributes and was fully human, then how is his perfect life of obedience of infinite value? How is his death of infinite value? If Christ was only God and, that, and that, that's all of what he is and not, did not add to himself a human nature, then how can he properly be our federal head? He needed him. He needed, if, if Christ was truly and only human alone, then he needed his own sins to be atoned for. If Christ did not add to himself a human nature, then saints, we have an incomplete sacrifice. We have an incomplete savior. We needed one who was truly man in order for mankind to be redeemed. So saints, why is this important? Well, we can go off the list of why it's important. But with respect to your salvation, the hypostatic union and the communication of properties and operations means everything. Let's pray.